Welcome to Tome of Tales. Set in the Cantus Expanse, a long-running 5th edition D&D campaign, this episode is a downtime write-up called Tall Tales for Spring, Part 1. Sleepy topaz blue eyes slowly drift open. Sunlight through the window falls across a bed of flower petals and plush moss, and the small woman turns into its warmth, a languid stretch rippling through her. From her pillow, somewhere next to her ear in her hair, comes a soft brrrr, as a head tries to keep its face in the soft part near her neck. Merla turns her head towards the little nipping at her ear, confused. What? Lou? Her eyes focus, and she sits up a bit more. A fairy dragon lifts its bluey-green head up, too, blinking and yawning, a soft little trill passing its lips. Lou! Oh, I have missed you so! How are you? My precious Lou! She leans her head down to the small dragon. I am well, the female dragon says, nuzzling into Merla's neck. Happy to see you again. As am I to see you. Merla runs her fingers down the dragon's elegant neck, and Lumina leans into the touch. (gasps) Your scales! Are they getting bluer? Merla's eyes light up. I think they are. You notice the lapis lazuli scales down my back? Lumina says, turning her head. All along her spine, starting where her platinum wings come out of her back, the scales are the prettiest blue Merla has ever seen. As she is running her hands down Lumina's spine, scratching her in her favorite places, she notices that some of them even have streaks of gold. I still see you have some fiery orange scales here, Merla says, pointing to a few dotting the little dragon's lower neck and chest. But the lapis lazuli scales are clearly very beautiful. Lumina pushes her head into Merla's hand and looks up at her, pupils widening as she does so. Merla giggles, placing both her hands on either side of the fey dragon's face and says, Of course they are. No other fey dragon shines as bright as you, my precious Lou. She leans in and kisses her nose. Luminous scales ripple, and a shimmer of golden light dances across the room as she does. Merla smiles at her little friend, seeing how happy she is at being praised. Looking around her room at the familiar sights and smells, the way the grass gives way to supple and living wood underfoot. The slight creak in that one spot she always steps in. The way the tree had been grown and magicked into giving up the space, made just for her many, many years ago. A contented feeling washes over her. Her things have been brought up to her room by the denizens of Titania's court sometime during or after the festivities. 
she had not returned with much more than she had left with. Sure, she had a different harp now than the one she had carried out with her. But looking over to the part of a room where she kept her music, she saw her first harp there, on its stand, as if it never left. Almost like I never left. Music floats through the wide opening of her window, and she recognizes Cruxerl's panpipes. She smiles, letting go of any worrisome thoughts, and starts singing along softly, swaying with a lilting tune for a moment. Lumina also starts to trill a harmony, and Merla opens her eyes to smile at her little friend. Are you hungry? She asks. I could do with something sweet. Lumina answers coyly, licking her lips. Then let's go find some apple pie, Merla suggests. Lumina perks up. Maybe even some whipped cream? The dragon's bluey-green feather tail twitches in excitement. Come on! Merla leaps up from her bed, scattering petals across the floor as she dashes to the vine-curtained doorway, Lumina flying after her. Queen Titania walks through the garden maze, listening to the child tell her of the beginnings of the war in Kulgaran, the fallout after the battle, and the infernal sigils that burned across the country. The animated way Merla speaks, the way she describes how the people planned, fought, and died. It wasn't anything new to the Seelie Queen, but for the child it was all new. So she listened. I never thought I would become involved in a war, let alone see its beginnings, Merla says, a solemnness to her voice, which the queen was unaccustomed to hearing. She looks down at her. The battlefields where I fought wasn't the worst of it, though we faced our share of giants. It was where the Order of the Crimson Fist and those stronger than I fought, that had the most bloodshed. I have been able to protect those I've been with, but it's the others, the ones who aren't with me that haven't fared well. They turn a corner, then another, in silence. I didn't know. I didn't understand how dangerous it could be. Hearing stories is different than living in them, but... Merla looks up to Titania. There is such hope in them. So much hope. And so much love. They have inspired me to be stronger. Her hand falls to the rapier on her side. The Seelie Queen notices the hand on the sword's hilt, but does not ask about it yet. You said though the battle with the giants is over, the war itself continues. Yes, Merla says. One of the latest threats comes from a group operating out of the very same country we fought to save. From around the bend, 
Ahead of them steps a knight clad in what seems to be green armor from head to toe. The armor is exquisite and gives the impression that each piece is made of blades of grass, several leaves, and parts of trees. Merla recognizes him right away and steps back and away from the queen as he approaches. Great queen, they have arrived. The green knight says, bowing low. Titania nods and subtly waves her hand. He bows again, and just as the knight is turning away, Merla thinks she sees him look at her, but the sun reflects off of Titania's breastplate as she turns towards her, and Merla has to blink the sudden light from her eyes. I must go for now, but you will come to me later, Titania says, a distance to her voice that wasn't there before. Of course, Femer, Merla says quietly, and bows. She feels Titania lightly place her hand on her head for the briefest of moments, and she smiles. As she straightens up, she sees Queen Titania has already walked away towards the bend, the green knight leading her away. Merla turns around and starts making her way back to the castle proper. I haven't done a proper concert since my return, and I know how much she loves to hear me sing. Maybe. Hmm. As she winds her way back through the maze, she starts to hear panpipe music drift over the tall hedges. Stepping through the entrance, Merla sees Cruxeril leaning against a young oak tree whilst he plays. In a branch above him, Lumina sits peering down at him, her tail swishing back and forth playfully. Hello, Cruxeril, she says, a lilting skip to her step. I have a proposition for you. He suddenly stops playing, eyes sparkling with mischief and curiosity. Good day, fair Merla. What could this proposition be? Well, I realized the other day we have not performed for the court together in a very long time, Merla says, excitedly. How would you feel about putting on a concert? Cruxerel puts his panpipes away and crosses his arms, thinking. I am a very Busy fay, you know, Merla. I cannot do just any old concert with just anyone. He gives her a crooked smile. What would you give me in exchange for this? How about this? She says and leans in and kisses him, lingering there for a moment before pulling back and giving him a playful wink. Lumina lets out a small trill of a laugh. Croxerol looks up at the small fairy dragon pointedly, before taking Merla by the shoulders and spinning her around so her back is against the tree, holding her there for a moment. That was not what I meant, but... His smile widens into a wicked grin, and her heart flutters as a rush of heat goes through her. It will do for now. So, he lets go of her and leans against the tree casually. When would you want to do this concert? Three days from now. Cruxerol raises his eyebrows 
and lets out a small chuckle. <laughs> you certainly don't wish to waste any time. We have plenty of time. It's you and me doing it after all. No one else can make music like us. Merla says, looking up at Croxerol. He takes her hand in his, turning it over to look at the calluses on her fingertips from all her years of playing. As he traces a line up her palm, wrist, then forearm, and back down again to her hands, she hears soft notes of yearning drift in the air around them. I will speak with my other students to see if they would accompany us. I assume you already have a set in mind. I do, Merla says. Hmm. He looks lost in thought for a moment. Does he hear the music too? Let's meet in the glade to start rehearsal in one hour. I will gather the others. Excellent. See you then, Crux, Merla says, blowing him a kiss with the hand he had been holding before turning around to head back to the castle, Lumina flying down to land on her shoulder. The grand stage had seen many performances over the eons. Bards from all across the lands, from across the realms, would pay anything to perform in the summer court for Queen Titania. As much as Merla would love to have this concert be on there, she knew she was not of a caliber that could be allowed on such a stage. At least, not yet. The concert Merla planned for was taking place instead in the palace itself for Titania and her inner court of Fae. The giant tree, hollowed out inside, has been outfitted with a platform where a grand instrument with dark and light keys stood on it off to one side, leaving the main and front part of the pop-up stage open. The court and their closest advisors, along with some of their families, were all gathered mixing and mingling, whilst Queen Titania was on her own, higher dais, speaking quietly to the Green Knight. Merla peeked her head out from behind a vine-covered alcove, trying to glean what the mood of the room was, what her mother could be speaking about to her advisor. Nervous, are you? Says a sing-song voice behind her. Merla turns and sees Durdis, her pink hair elegantly curled around a headdress that was on the kinder side of gaudy. She stands with one hand on her hip, whilst looking at the other, examining her manicured nails, whilst looking down her nose at the smaller woman. I would completely understand. You haven't been here for a year. It's your first performance in front of the inner court, too. Her lips pout in mock sincerity. Are you sure you're even up for it? 
Unlike you, Durdis, I have been performing in front of varied crowds for the past year, Merla says, walking back to where her harp sits, unfazed. I have no doubt that we all will perform exquisitely. Everyone has been working very hard the past three days. She spins, tossing her hair over her shoulders with a wink to her friend who scowls. Daddis, what are you doing? Cruxerl's sharp tone cuts off the snarky reply the Aladrin was about to say. You are supposed to be with the other dancers, leading them. Go to your place backstage. Durdis nods her head, flustered. At once, master. As she turns, she shoots Merla a vicious scowl, then shimmies off to where the dancers are waiting. Merla had hoped being away for a year would improve her friend's confidence, maybe even give her a chance to spread her musical wings and find her place at court. But if the last three days were any indication of how her progress was going, or lack thereof, the outlook wasn't good. She has one more chance to prove herself. One, and then I'm letting her go. Cruxerl starts, coming up to Merla. Her attitude alone is grating enough on my patience. If only all my students could be as gifted as you, little Mer. Durdis does have her talents, though. She is flexible in ways I'll never be. She sees Cruxerl smile and has to quickly look away, a flush creeping across her ears. Ah, uh, what I mean is, she shouldn't feel less for not being able to do more than what she can. Contortion isn't easy, and her dancing is, technically speaking, beautiful. But technique only goes so far. The satyr counters, coming around to peer through the vined curtain. If one's heart is not fully in it, the audience knows. He trails off and looks back at her. Merla's brow furrows slightly. Why do I feel like he's speaking of something else? She comes closer to him as he continues to look at her, his face unreadable, placing a hand on his arm. Crux, what is it? He takes her hand from his arm, holding it between them delicately. Once again, he traces a pattern across her palm and she feels her heart tug, but something else niggles at the back of her mind it's probably just pre-show nerves. No matter how many times I perform, I always get them. As soon as the thought crosses her mind, he brings her hand up to his lips and kisses it, closing his eyes. She leans in, wanting those mischievous lips to kiss her again and again. Thoughts of the performance she's about to do pushed from her mind. I think... I really am falling in love with Cruxerol. He opens his eyes, and they are brighter than before. A magic making their verdant green colors shimmer in the dimly lit curtained area. 
Your heart is always in your music, Merla. Cruxerl says, stepping closer, pulling her towards him possessively. It is what makes your songs so powerful. That cannot be taught or learned. You, your song. He lifts her chin up so their mouths are a hair's breadth apart. All forms of temptation in his sensual smile. There is no other like it. Crux, I have to. Why is he telling me this now? We have to go on in a minute. He gives a throaty chuckle and pulls away the promise of the kiss that was about to happen, falling away like autumn leaves. Merla feels her nerves pushed into overdrive by the way he had her melting at his words just now. She suddenly isn't sure if what he said was honest or not. But he has no reason to lie to her. Does he? Then an idea strikes her. When we are out there performing together, give yourself to my music. Then, and only then, will you truly feel my heart, Cruxeral. Unless what you said is a lie, then all you will hear is a pretty song. She smiles at him, all fey charm and mischievousness, no part of it mortal. The murmur of the Fae quietens as she lightly steps out onto the darkened stage. The orbs of light around the grand instrument give a soft, warm glow, bathing Cruxerel in a golden hour-like light, casting deep shadows across his face, which makes his horns look longer and more sinister. None of the fair folk can see her, though some of keen hearing can tell she has stopped somewhere near the center. Some sort of magic keeps the part of the stage she is on in shadow, or maybe she is using illusion magic. Queen Titania holds up her hand, and the last low voices fall silent. Not even the beating of a butterfly's wings can be heard through the court's hall. Watch me, and listen to my song. Cymbals crash and drums are struck. A rhythm starts a strong and lilting 3-4 measure. The stage starts to shift, set pieces rising and falling hither and yon. Dur disappears with the dancers, tumbling and falling like the waves on a tumultuous and stormy sea. But still no sign of Merla. Cymbals crash again, and Cruxerel starts to play the grand piano he sits at, the entire thing on its own platform. With the first note from the keys, there is a corresponding burst of light, and she leaps out from the shifting stage, an iridescent white dress that shimmers in the shifting light of blues and greens and golds as the waves continue to crash, her trademark wings gone. Merla weaves through the dancers, sometimes joining in the pas de deux or trois, sometimes dancing solo. 
It seems like a playful game, but there's a viciousness that gives it the feeling of a chase, of running away. But who is chasing whom? All the while the master of revelries absorbed in his playing of the grand keyed instrument, seemingly conducting the whole thing, watches his protege being tossed to and fro, dancing between the lithe and beautiful forms of the fey chorus. Then she begins to sing. God rest his head, Sunday afternoon. And the wicked in me is surely the wicked in you. We pray to a ghost that we never met. Time turns for a cure from the science it's for. Madness, madness of the heart but you knew it you knew it from the start it is like she is speaking to the fae though what pours from her lips is the most tantalizing music it beckons all that listen to join her in the madness of the waltz as she steps across the dancers and leaps across the shifting stage each word speaks of a secret that only she knows of, ancient and powerful. And Hawking will tell us no tall tales this spring. Our minds hold the chaos that started everything. Maybe it's fate when the sadness takes hold. Still stars through a window, will they ever know this? Everything slows. The air gets heavier and Merla's voice starts to echo, like a half-remembered dream. The shifting, bluey-green light focuses on her as she appears to just float in a void of deep water. Hair streaming out around her, her dress shimmering like a mermaid's tail, pinpricks of starlight dotting the dark void around her, reaching towards the fae of the court. To Titania, she sings out, Madness, madness of the heart. But we knew it, we knew it from the start. There's a madness, a madness of the heart But you knew it, you knew it from the start Merla falls back as the crescendo breaks Swept away on the wave of sound and light The dancers tear away at her and the music seems to toss her about Like she's being consumed by it all the Fae are enraptured by her performance, so exposed and so visceral. Then, emerging from the roiling mass of shifting forms, Merla steps out of the dark, a beacon of sunlight. Her now shimmering, golden hair falls back from her face, and the Fae watching all gasp as they see the echo of Titania's visage. Some even turn around to ensure that it isn't the queen herself on the stage, 
But they see the Summer Queen on her throne, watching the child, and they turn back, a little unnerved. When they look again, they clearly see it is not their queen, but her daughter. A true vision of a princess of the Summer Court. As Merla sings, she lifts her arms, and the fabric wrapped around them unfurls, revealing wings of iridescent light that shimmers in the golden glow. She looks to her mother, the queen of the Fae, and she sings to her. Stare asleep, he smile into a sunbeam. There's nothing more than a daydream. Color-stained glass, cathedral. Confess a past that won't let you go. Merla steps off the stage and seems to float down into the audience, the fabric of her dress billowing in a wind that only seems to be around her. They back up, some in awe, others in surprise, her presence commanding and regal. Some even notice a delicate feathered circlet around her head. She continues to sing, grabbing their attention with her voice. She is the conductor now, dominating the roiling sea around her with gestures. God rest your head, Sunday afternoon. And the wicked in me is surely coming through. I'll pray to a ghost that I've never met. Still searching for some way out of this madness. As Merla moves back, she seems to step into thin air, rising up and up. She clutches at her bosom as the dancers lift her higher and higher. It's the heart. As she sings, she opens her hands and a blood-red dahlia in the shape of a heart rests within, which she shows off for all to see. It's the heart, and there's madness, a madness in the stars. But you knew it, we knew it from the start. Merla tosses the dahlia up into the air, and it bursts, the petals swirling around her as she dances. With the sunlight glow of her skin, and the golden glow of the dancing orbs around Cruxerel, washing the stage in a sunset glow, the petals appear like blood raining from the sky. She closes her eyes and follows the waltz of the music, conducting the dancers, the accompanists, everything with her sweeping movements until they too scatter to the winds. Then it's just Cruxerel on the piano and her, dancing in a single beam of sunlight. Her bare feet are stained red from the crushed petals under her feet. Even though he plays and she dances, to those watching it is like they are both playing the grand instrument 
and dancing together at the same time. Then, all too soon, the last note is struck, the last step is danced, and Merla's radiant fey form is the only light left as the stage goes dark. What a spectacular performance, Murphy! I see your time with the mortals was not all fun in games. It has taught you some of the ways of life. Yes, yes, like the use of the Dahlia in the shape of a heart. Very clever. Did you compose and choreograph that last number all yourself? I composed all of the music myself over the year I've been away. But the final number was choreographed by Dirtis, Merla replies. Extraordinary! I must speak with her about a project I want to do. I, for one, am sad to see you without your wings. I thought they really became you. I felt it was time to move on. Once you have actually flown, costumed wings seem rather childish, Merla says. I see. And so it went. The performers had come out after the last number to enjoy a drink and some food with the inner court. Merla was tired, but in a happy way. She had given her all in that last number. It seemed to have gone over better than she could have intended. If you will excuse me, she says, making her way to a table laden with food and drink. Still wearing the outfit from the last song, the shimmering fabric clings to her in the heat of the large room. The twilight evening was humid in a way that was unusual for this time of year, and she wondered again where the queen was. She had tried to find her after the show, but she was not on her throne, nor did she see her anywhere else towering above all. I wonder if my performance displeased her. Your performance was invigorating. The Green Knight seemingly appeared from nowhere right beside her, and she nearly dropped her fey wine in surprise. He glances down at her, his face a mask as unreadable as the helmet he wears. Wait a minute. Is that a salad you wear or a mask? Merla asks, and then realizes how it may have sounded. Forgive my rudeness, Green Knight. She hastily bows and goes to move away. I appreciate the compliment, sir. If you will excuse... It is not a salad. This is my face. Only this part... He pauses and lifts his hand up. ...is more like a visor than a mask. He moves the part she thought was a mask, which appears to be an exaggeration of the fey features he has. Elvin, like an Aladrin, with a mix of insectile features. He does not lift it all the way, however. Only a little, as if adjusting it. It is a mistake often made when others first look at me. I see, Merla says, and then realizes how silly what she just said may sound and starts to laugh at herself. The Green Knight tilts his head in confusion, which only makes her want to laugh harder. <laughs> oh, forgive me, sir. I am only laughing at... Well, a Murphy's silly joke. Hmm. Is all he says. 
Merla looks up at him, wondering if she should say something. She had never spoken to the Green Knight before, had hardly seen him except on very rare occasions. But since returning, she has seen him around a lot more. Do you come to such events often, sir? She asks. No. Merla waits for him to elaborate, but he does not. She tries again. Do you enjoy the arts and music? They are enjoyable, but my time is mostly spent away from court. It was happenstance that I was able to see you perform. And did you enjoy it? I said your performance was invigorating, did I not? Ah, but did you enjoy it, sir? There is a difference. He seems to think for a moment. I enjoyed the dancing at the end. It reminded me of Queen Titania fighting on the battlefields. That took her by surprise. It was probably the greatest compliment she had received all night. Your words are very kind, sir. I receive them gladly, Merla says, and he looks at her. Hmm. Is all he says. They stand there as a gaggle of fay comes stumbling over, clearly deep in their cups. Durdis is amongst them, and she raises her glass to Merla. Mer, I got offered an apprenticeship by one of the nobles. They said they loved my choreography and want me to work with them on a new ballet or some such. <laughs> Looks like I'll be out of that old goat's hair in no time. She takes a deep drink from her cup and pours some more in to replace what she just drank. Guess I owe it to you, friend. You don't owe me anything, Turdis, Merla says, holding up her hands, hoping the very inebriated Aladrin would not fall into her. Your hard work has finally paid off. Easy for you to say, daughter of the Fae. You have been getting special treatment since the day you waltzed into this court. That's hardly true, Dirtis, Merla says, trying to smile but feeling hurt by her words. It is true. Even when you were gone, the old goat wouldn't shut up about you. Look! Dirtis gestures to the Green Knight, standing silently beside Merla, watching the whole exchange with an unreadable face. Even the Green Knight is standing guard beside you. Mummy dearest wouldn't want anything to happen to her precious mortal Murphy. Dirtis, stop, Merla says, her tone serious as she looks around, making sure it is just them and no one else is hearing what she is saying. What makes you so special, hmm? The Aladrin leans in close, poking her long-nailed finger into her chest. Merla can smell the sweet grapes on her breath, and it makes her sick. Why do you get all the attention when you aren't even one of us? I am just as much a fae as you are, Merla says, words sharp like razors. Durdis recoils and looks a little shaken all of a sudden. Too long has Durdis been allowed to walk over her. 
and too long has she tried to support her friend, despite how cruel she has been. No more. I am happy you finally have this opportunity to spread your wings and be out from my shadow. I know you've hated me from the moment we met, and yet you tried to be my friend anyway. There aren't words that can express how grateful I am for that, Durdis. But know this. Merla takes a step closer, looking up at the pink-haired Aladrin. I am not the same person I was a year ago. Do not think you can speak to me in such a manner ever again. Despite Durdis being the taller of the two women, it is clear who is feeling smaller. Of... of course. Forgive me. She curtsies, puts her glass down on the table, and quickly scurries off into the throng of Fay. The Green Knight looks down at Merla, but doesn't say anything. I think I shall retire for the evening, she says quietly. Good night, sir. Good night. Merla exits the Grand Hall, the loud conversations and wine still buzzing around in her head. It's a little cooler when she stepped out of the hall, but once she started to climb the Grand Stairs, she could feel the heat rising with her. Looking outside through the open windows, Merla sees storm clouds again, thunder and lightning roiling through the dark clouds, obscuring the almost new moon. Once again, she wonders if her performance displeased her mother in any way. A warm breeze drifts through the window, lifting her now more golden pink hair off of her back momentarily. Another round of thunder sounds overhead, this time closer and Merla suddenly feels an urge to hasten her plans to speak to her queen mother about returning to Cantus. This downtime write-up was called Tall Tales for Spring, Part 1. Set in the Cantus Expanse, a long-running 5th edition D&D campaign run by the London RPG community. Lumina was voiced by Rianne Vardelion. Queen Titania was voiced by Laura Tolton. Cruxerel and the Green Knight were voiced by Gwydion Evans. Thank you for listening. Tune in again for the next chapter in Cheryl's story. <laughs>